Thank you. This man came to him by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher. There's even a bigger ringer now. A bigger ringer. Thank you. That might do it. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. <laughs> Let me start over here. He said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God because no one can do these signs. Now, he had seen Jesus do physical things. And so from that physical evidence, he knew that God must be with him. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now notice, please, that he is still confined to the physical world. Jesus answered, Truly I say to you, unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now there's two types of birth there, the water and the Spirit. He cannot enter the kingdom of God. Now let me just skip over to the 13th verse. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who has descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Let me just say a special prayer at the beginning of this message. There have been some things going on this morning that just make it evidence that, that um, there's a little more static in the spiritual air this morning than there usually is. Um, and so I think if we prayed at the beginning of this, God might transform His message and fit it better into your heart. Father, we do pray that You will take this message and You will twist it into shapes and sizes that fit all of the individuals in this congregation. These words are but a poor resemblance of what you in this world and your ability to function in this world rests upon your ability to discern. That is to tell the difference between one thing and another thing. The more things that you can tell the difference between their relative value and where they fit and where they don't fit, the smarter you are considered to be and the more capacity you have. I want to share with you that that is just as true in the spiritual world as it is in the physical world. But I want to share with you that nothing of the physical world, no understanding from the physical world, can be translated into the spiritual world because there's a huge chasm between what is natural, that is physical, and what is spiritual. And no person by their own effort can get over that chasm. And so we're starting from the very beginning this morning, just the simplest of all messages, and that is to try to tell the difference between what is natural and what is spiritual, what is physical and what is spiritual. First of all, let's have a little fun. Okay, the first point's just fun. I'm not going to quote Scripture at the first point because there's just no use. I'm going to talk about people who look merely horizontally. There are a lot of people who have a religion of humanism. Now, you've heard that word before. You've heard that word before. Let me explain that to you. Humanism is basically believing in people and believing in people to such an extent that you believe that the highest anybody can achieve, the highest insight anybody can achieve in this world is to consider everybody 
in their dignity and in their potential. And that's what you believe in and that's what you count on. Now, the reason I'm not going to quote Scripture this morning in this first point is because humanists do not give authority to Scripture. They give authority to reason and give authority to some experience, not too much experience, but to some experience. Therefore, I'll quote Shakespeare. Shakespeare's big humanist favorite. He was considered a genius by everybody. Anybody doesn't consider Shakespeare? Willie Shakespeare. Here, you go. Here he goes. Hamlet, Act 2, Scene 2. If I only had my costume on, I could do this more effectively. What a piece of work is man. Now, this is a humanist philosophy here. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason. How infinite in capacity. In form and moving, how express and admirable. In action, how like an angel. In apprehension, how like a god. That's what humanists believe. I don't. You know why? Because <laughs> I live with my family, and my family lives with me, and I've seen myself in the mirror. Let me tell you how you cannot believe in a humanist dogma and not just let your faith rest on other people. There's two books that you can read, both of them supposedly listing the highest human achievement. Read the Guinness Book of World Records. There have been 42.5 million of those things sold. I'm sure you can get your hands on one of them. And also the Book of Lists. That's a real popular bestseller these days, a Book of Lists. Read those. Now, these are the highest human achievements. And you see if those aren't high enough to set all your faith on. I don't believe they are. Let me just go along quoting Shakespeare and, and tell you a few stories out of those books that I read. First of all, what a piece of work is man. Now, that much I believe. How noble in reason. I don't believe that. Let me tell you, Charles B. King was elected in 1928 president of... Liberia by a vote margin of 284,000 votes. Now, that's pretty neat, isn't it? Except for the fact that there were only 15,000 voters in the whole country. How noble in reason? No, I don't believe that. Do you believe that? I don't believe it. Nope, nope. How infinite in faculty. I'm going to work in a few of the 12 stupidest crimes in history here. Um... 1978, Ted Kipperman, who owns a pawnbroker shop in Houston, a guy comes in, tries to cash a $789 tax refund check made out to Ernestine and Robert Hayes. Kipperman looks at him and says, this is made out to two people. Which are you, Ernestine or Robert? I have to have both people here. He goes, I am both people. He said, what are you talking about? I'll see if you buy this. The guy says, when my mother was going to have me, she thought she was going to have twins. Honest. True. When my mother... I mean, the story isn't true. The made-up story is... And she thought she was going to have twins. And only one of me came out until she gave me both names. The guy said, could I see some identification? He pulls out identification where he had penciled in Ernestine and Robert Hayes. Can you believe that? Kipperman didn't either. He was arrested a few hours later, and they returned the check to the real Ernestine and Robert Hayes, two people. Um, there was another record of a robbery of a guy on a motorcycle in England who charted out this robbery. He was going to go in this tavern at just the right time of the day. He had all the, all the, when the cash box was the fullest. He knew it was fullest. He'd been in a tavern a few times, probably. And so he rides his motorcycle up. He gets out. His helmet and his shield are going to be his mask. He dashes into the thing, gets all the money. It's a perfect robbery. 
hops on his motorcycle, buzzes off. He's arrested one hour later. You know why? He had forgotten that across his helmet, in one-inch high letters, was the name Clyde Duncan Driver. <laughs> arrested him just like that. How infinite in faculty. Can you believe it? I don't believe it. No, sir. No, sir. In form and moving, how express and admirable. I don't believe that either. I know my own clumsiness. I want to tell you a story about Miriam Hargrove, who holds the record for the most times flunking a driver's test. Not the written part, the driving test. 39 times she flunked the driving part. The last time she crashed, she crashed through a whole line of red lights at the end. Flunked it. How admirable? I don't believe that. I will tell you the end of that. She did pass on the 40th time, but she had spent so much money on 212 driving lessons she didn't have any money for a car. I don't believe that we are worshiping people like we do. In action, Shakespeare says, how like an angel. No, I don't believe that. Jay Mitchell in Albuquerque, New Mexico, tried to pull off a heist, went into this store, grabbed a bunch of jewelry, had him put them in a bag, grabbed it in a bag, had a pistol in his hand, was running out the door, and his pants fell down. He <laughs> fell flat on his face. The pistol went that way. The jewelry went that way. He got him up high enough that he climbed into his pickup truck and drove off. Two hours later, somebody in his building reported a pistol missing. The police went there. Uh, they saw the pickup truck out there. They thought maybe that was it. They went up to his apartment. They arrested him. They were going to take him down to the police uh, thing for, for questioning. They didn't know whether or not they had the right man. One policeman grabbed one arm. The other policeman grabbed the other arm to escort him out to the car. His pants fell down again. <laughs> After that happened, he admitted it. In action, how like an angel. You believe it? No, 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 no. I don't believe that. In apprehension, how like a God. I don't believe that either. 1982, Baltimore. This guy breaks into this lady's apartment, holds her up. He's going to say, give me all your money. She gives him $11.50. He gets mad at her. He says, is this all your money you got? She said, yeah, that's all the money I got. He said, how do you pay your bills? By check. Well, write me out a check. Make it for 35, 50 bucks. She goes, who do I write it out to? Me, Charles A. Merriweather. <laughs> Honest to goodness. And he says, if this bounces, I'll be back. <laughs> Come on now. Let's get serious about this. How like a God? Oh, no, 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 no. Let's not. Let's not. Please. There is more to religion than looking horizontally. Please. Oh, there has to be more. And if those of you who have believed in the best of man have made that the cap of your faith, you have a low cap indeed. One, one, uh, year when Beck and I were at our last church, we decided to do something really neat with the kids. So we loaded them all on the bus, took them all to Washington, D.C. And we had the itinerary all laid out, and we were going to, we only had one day to spend at Smithsonian. And Smithsonian is just a glorious, I mean, if you've been there, it's a historian. I, I was a history major. Boy, it's just a fantastic place. We took all of these kids there. You know where they spent their time? All of them were out on the lawns playing frisbee. Hey! We kept going, come in here, it's a hope diamond, you can't believe it. Yeah, we'll be in a minute, we just want to play some more frisbee. <laughs> I was sitting there below the spirit of St. Louis. Charles A. Lindbergh flew this plane across the Atlantic Ocean. I'm hearing this, boy, that one really went far, didn't it, Fred? 
I'm looking at the space capsule. Boy, that one really went high, didn't it, Charlie? They were talking about the Frisbee, not about the stuff. Then we went home, you know what they said? We went to the Smithsonian. No, they didn't. They were at the Smithsonian. They didn't go to the Smithsonian. Now listen, those folks who say, I have a faith, I have a religion. Uh, no, not really. Not really, because you have not crossed the threshold of what is available to you. It's like going to the Smithsonian and spend all your time playing Frisbee. If you're going to believe in people, that's okay to a certain extent. But folks, you're not, you're not that gullible to place your faith in people, are you? No, I don't believe that. But what about, what about if you are 100% natural, but you're the best 100% natural that can possibly be? What about if you're like Nicodemus, who really and truly sought out how to come to God? What if you're like John the Baptist, who really and truly wanted to bring in the kingdom of God? What if you're not just looking across, but you are looking upwards? Isn't that good enough? Now I'm going to make you mad. No, it's not. No, it's not. Because there's a great chasm in terms of spiritual discernment. And if you're natural, you're 100% natural. Only if you can get over the chasm to the spiritual side can you really, truly discern spiritual things. Now, that doesn't mean you're not great. And that doesn't mean your heart is not in the right place. Jesus tried to explain to Nicodemus what the process was. And, but see, Nicodemus could only discern spiritual things. What do you mean? You mean you've got to go back in the womb and be born again? He couldn't even grasp it. He wanted to, but he couldn't. And John the Baptist, you know what Jesus said to John the Baptist. He said, of all people, Matthew eleven eleven, of all people born to women, John the Baptist is the greatest. You know what John the Baptist was doing at the time? He was in prison. He had lived all of his ministry. He had baptized Jesus. He had looked at Jesus. He had said, behold, here is the Lamb of God. And now at the end of his ministry, he was about to die, and he had sent his disciples out to Jesus to ask what? Are you the one? Or should we wait for another? See, he didn't have spiritual discernment. He of all people, Jesus said, was the greatest, but he did not have spiritual discernment. He was still 100% natural. You know why? Because the physical cannot discern the spiritual. It is absolutely impossible. There is a great chasm. Now, I want to relax you for a minute this morning. I'm not talking about terms of salvation here. Not talking, I'm talking about spiritual discernment. That's the thrust of my talk. I can't imagine going to heaven and not seeing John the Baptist up there. But I'm saying if you want to see spiritual things, if you want to perceive the world like God perceives the world, there's no way you can do it without being born again, being born of the Spirit. In 1 Corinthians, 2nd chapter, verse 14, that one is in your, uh, in your bulletin, it says this, For the natural man receiveth not the things of God. They are foolishness to him. Some of you, you know, are sitting there thinking, what's this guy, you know, this guy's kind of off on fairyland today. You know, it just isn't real, it's not solid stuff. I want him to teach me how to live better. You know, tell me I've been doing wrong and tell me to do right. What's all this, this other spiritual insight stuff? See, they're foolishness to the natural man. The Bible says, neither can he understand them, for they are spiritually discerned. See, you know what it is when you, when I was leafing through a, a magazine the other day, and I saw a test for colorblindness. Daryl's colorblind. Um, 
You know what it is. Remember when you went to get your uh, 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 eyes checked for your driver's license? You looked in there. What was it? It was a bunch of little dots, wasn't it? And some were different colors. Those of you who are not colorblind could not help but see a pattern in that. Those of you who are colorblind could not see a pattern. It's just that way with physical and spiritual discernment. Those of you who can only discern things physically, can only see the things of the world, can't see a pattern in the world. Those of you who have been born of the Spirit and have Christ living in them can't help but see God's pattern in the world. Everywhere you look, you see God's pattern. It's a different thing altogether. And Jesus used to get so frustrated with people because they were absolutely the best people who ever lived and wanted to know God's will more than anything else. But they would not, they could not see with spiritual eyes. He looked in the faces of the, of the, of the Pharisees one day, Matthew 10, 3. He's, now, this is the best religion in the world. Jesus was a Jew. The Pharisees are Jewish. This is absolutely the best religion in the world, and these are the best people of the best religion. This is the cream of all humanity. You think you've got a real on-fire faith, a Pharisee, would spend all day reading scriptures, would spend all day praying, would spend, give everything they had to the town. I mean, they were holy people. They would do anything to be righteous. But they came up and looked in the face of the Son of God and said, do you have a sign for us? And Jesus looked at him and said, you've got to be kidding. You guys can look at the sky and tell me whether or not it's going to rain tomorrow. But you can't discern the signs of the time. They were the holiest people that ever were, but they didn't know they were talking to the Son of God. See, there's two different ways of looking at things. And when Jesus talked to his disciples, those disciples who had accepted him and lived with him, and they, he was living in their heart already, he said, blessed are your eyes. Kings and prophets have wanted to see what you have seen, and they never did, but you see it. He looked at him one day and he said, you know what? In a little while, the world will see me no more, but you will see me. John 14, 19. You will see me. What was he talking about? Physically? He was talking about spiritually. How can you get over that chasm? There's only one way, and that's to accept Jesus Christ into your heart. The difference between physical discernment and spiritual discernment is simply seen with physical eyes or spiritual eyes. And the only way you can see with the eyes of God is to have God living in you. That's the only way. It's just that simple, and it can happen. The first step is to accept Jesus Christ into your heart. In, in John, the 14th chapter, 7 through 11, it says this. Philip comes out, and he's Philip's still having some trouble with this physical, spiritual thing. Have you ever seen one of those... Uh, uh, those patterns, and it kind of goes in and comes in and goes out. You know, there's a, there's a thing floating around called a Jesus. Uh, that, that If you look at it a certain way, you can see the name Jesus. If you don't, it just looks like a bunch of shadows. Or you can, you, there's, a, there's a certain cloud with an image of Christ in it. And if you look at it one way, you can see it. But if you, if, if you can't, it just looks like a bunch of ink blots. Well, that's how spiritual insight is sometimes. It doesn't always come right away just like that. Sometimes it kind of fades in and goes out. And this is what's happening with Philip, Philip right now. And he's coming out and he's asking for a sign. He said, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. 
If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. And from now on, you know him and have seen him. Now, Philip hasn't caught on yet. He said, Lord, show us the Father. (laughs) That's enough. Jesus looked at him and said, Have I been with you so long, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How do you say, show us the Father? You do not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father, and the Father in me. How do you get this spiritual insight? You let Christ live in you, and you live with him, to such an extent that you be able to see things with his eyes. What things last and what things don't? You'll never be able to see them without looking through the eyes of faith. What things are important and what things aren't? You'll never be able to know without the eyes of faith. What things can you count on and what things can't you? You'll never be able to know without the eyes of faith. You'll never have the eyes of faith without Christ living in your heart. That's the first step. And that's something that is actually done through simple invitation. You know, in the Bible it says, in Revelation chapter 1, verse 7, that someday Jesus Christ is coming in the clouds. Someday he's going to come in the clouds. And you know what it says? It says, every eye shall behold him. Every eye shall see him, even those that have pierced him. You know what that means? That means that someday every one of you is going to look at the face of Jesus Christ, and he's going to look at you. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you want to see it as a friend who you've seen every day for years, or do you want to see it as a stranger who is real apprehensive about what that means? The difference is simply inviting him to live in your heart and looking at the world as he looks at the world and letting him be your companion day after day. The Scripture says, Romans 10, 9, that he who has confessed Christ with his lips and believed in his heart that God has raised him from the dead is saved. That all, that's all it takes. Just saying, Jesus, I want you to live in my heart. I want you to be the throne. And then you'll begin to see things in terms of the Spirit. In terms of the Spirit. The most important decision you'll ever make in your life. I'm going to ask Christy to sing a song. And during this song... I, want, I don't do this every Sunday, but I, I would be really cruel to preach a sermon that ends up with the step that you need to take, the first step you need to take is to accept Christ and not give you that invitation and help you do that this morning. That would really be a dirty trick. I'm not going to lead you to the door and not lead you through if you want to go through. I know that there are probably some people in here tonight, or today, <laughs> I've been up for a long time, probably some people in here today who have never confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, never said the prayer, I invite you to do that. Not as, a, not as a threat, simply as an invitation. I would be humbled and privileged to help you to do that. Um, it's the first step in spiritual discernment, and it's open to you today. Please, everybody bow and pray. Those of you who feel led, let me pray with you. I'd love to. The week after this, and however long this series lasts, <clears throat> Um, I'm going to explore with you the biblical titles and names given to the Lord Jesus Christ because in those names lie the 
different ways that people perceive the person of Christ. Now, the value in this lesson lies in this. The more we can dis discern the different ways that Christ was perceived, the more ways we will let him be active in our lives in those ways. It's not as if we as Christians can just accept Jesus Christ and then he takes over. That's not, that's not how it is. Faith has to be taught. There's nothing natural about faith. You know, it, uh, we, preachers uh, sometimes assume that if somebody just accepts Jesus Christ, they're going to know everything. Or if they read the Bible, they're going to know everything. So That's not true. Faith has to be taught. And when you ask somebody to follow Christ, it's not fair to ask them to follow Christ if you don't help them understand the different aspects of the personality of Christ. So that's what we're going to be doing every other week, exploring the names of Christ. There are something like 103 of them mentioned in the New Testament, give or take a few. We're not going to go through all 103. Um, we are going to break them up into different categories. Um, but the the difference between exploring the names of Christ and exploring the character of the Holy Spirit lies in this. Christ represents what God does for us on our behalf. The Holy Spirit represents what God does in us and through us. Christ is the cornerstone of our salvation. The, the Bible calls him the cornerstone of the, of the temple that we are. The Holy Spirit's function is to glorify Christ and to lift him up and to identify him and to bring to us a remembrance of him. Now, when Scripture says a remembrance, they're not talking about just an intellectual remembrance. All through Scripture, the remembrance of what God has done has been a source of power. And so when Jesus Christ says to you, I will send to you another, the comforter, the Holy Spirit, and he will bring to your mind all that I have said. That's not just an intellectual recollection. That is a personal and powerful identification of the memory of Jesus Christ. And in that, there is a spiritual power. You know, in our brains, there, is a, there are physical uh, recordings within the cells uh, I think I've told you in sermons before that a, that a doctor named Penfield, when he was doing brain surgery, electrically stimulated different parts of the brain and memories would come back. And not only the recollection of those memories, but all of the emotions and the actual experiences that went along with those memories. That's what happens when we remember the words of Christ, when the Holy Spirit brings to our mind who Christ is and what Christ has done for us. There is an actual experience of Christ all over again, and we're empowered as we have not been empowered before. So we're going to be identifying Jesus Christ and what he does for us, what, what God does for us on our behalf through the life of Jesus Christ. Here come a few. And the reason I leave these all, I know that the better way of teaching would probably be, would be to reveal this one by one and leave it to, to your suspense and all that kind of stuff. And, have something new, but I would like for you while I'm talking, if you can do both, to kind of flip ahead so that you don't get behind in Scripture looking up him. Uh, I hope that you, you use these times as kind of uh, uh, ways to rehearse looking up Scriptures in the Bible. I hope also that if you have not done this yet, 
Yet you will go to any Bible bookstore and you will buy these tabs that attach to the different chapters of your Bible so that when we are looking things up, whether in worship or in uh, Bible study, you can just flip to the book and you'll, it'll, you'll, you'll be a lot less frustrated, okay? Uh, they sell for like um, two ninety-five. so take along a few bucks and attach the tabs and you will have a much more uh, fun time looking up uh, scripture readings. First thing I want to talk to you today about tonight is uh, <clears throat> that Christ is called the Adam of our faith. Now, in 1 Corinthians 15, 45, it says, So also it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living soul. Now, the soul in the Bible does not... We, we misuse that word a lot. We soul... Uh, uh, um, the, the colloquial or the, the common way of using the word soul uh, is that it is the part of us that goes up to heaven afterwards and so on and so forth. It's like a little empty spot that God works in, and then after we die, this, the soul goes up to heaven. In, this, in the scripture, the soul is the personality of the person. It's the core of the person. And so it is not separated from the physical part of the person. It is not the spirit of the person. Those two are separate in scripture. So he became a living soul. That is, he had a personality. Okay? And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Now, notice the difference here. Became a life-giving spirit. And that, of course, is Christ. But the, um, um, however, the spirit is not first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. Now, I want you to just know that for a real fun reading time, if you want to uh, read about some, some interesting things about what's going to happen to us after we die, uh, read the 15th chapter of Corinthians. We won't go into the whole 15th chapter tonight, but a lot of people have questions about what it's going to be like and what we're going to be like. And This really addresses uh, some of the possibilities and some of the biblical language about what happens to us after we die. Take time and read that whole 15th chapter. What it basically says is that Christ gives us a spiritual body. We have a physical body that will deteriorate. And it, the older you get, the more it deteriorates and the faster it deteriorates. Um, but Christ gives us a spiritual body that is being renewed every day so that it never deteriorates. And what ha what's going to happen, uh, first of all, let me show you the difference. I'll get through this, don't worry. I'm just taking a lot of time here at the beginning. I'll get on a roll and go real fast in a minute. But, but these things keep coming to my mind, and I want to I share them with you. The difference between Christianity and the Eastern religions is that the Eastern religions promise us, promise to let us be blended back into the universe. In the Eastern religions, it is not a virtue to have an individual personality. In the Christian religion, our individual personality lives forever. We are given a, given a spiritual body, and we are a separate entity. And what that says to us is that God values us as individuals. Uh, you have, have heard the term nirvana uh, that Buddhists and Hindus and so on and so forth go for. Nirvana is simply a breaking so that you can blend back into the universe. It is absolute nothingness. The Easterners would picture us, picture us as an empty jar, and when our physical bodies die, it's like breaking the jar so that that air may become at one with the universe. Christianity will have no truck with that. 
It says that we have spiritual bodies and that we will be recognized after we die. We will, be, we will be recognizable after we die. Now, we don't know exactly what they look like. And here it says we don't know any more. We can't tell any more what our physical or spiritual bodies are going to look like than we can uh, from our physical bodies. Then we can tell what a, a, a stock of corn is going to look like from the seed. You just can't tell. So we don't know that yet. But we do know that God will preserve our spiritual bodies. That's a promise to us. So Christ is the first Adam. He is the, the uh, just as at, we all came physically from Adam the man. We all came spiritually from Christ the man. Christ the spiritual person. Okay, let's go on. Christ is the Alpha and the Omega. In Revelations 1.18, Revelation 1.18, I keep, where do, where do I get Revelations? There aren't a number of them. One book of Revelation. Oops, that's not 118. 1.8, okay, I'm sorry. It says, and to the angel of the church in... Uh, <laughs> Smyrna, <laughs> um, the first and the last who was dead and has come to life says this. Um, and on down, it calls him the Alpha and Omega. There are several places in the scripture that calls him the Alpha and the Omega. What that means is, and it's, it's again in 2213, uh, uh, is that he is both the creator and the judge. Now, I'm not going to talk about this for very long because that's pretty self-evident. Um, what I am going to say to you is that you should have an attitude uh, with Christ as you have an attitude of somebody that you're going to see again. You know, we treat people differently if we think that eventually we're going to, we're going to be out of their lives and we're never, never going to have to deal with them again. When we know that we're going to be running into somebody again, we take care to treat them as responsibly as we can. We need to know that Christ is not only the Alpha, but he is also the Omega. He will come to judge the quick and the dead. Okay, let's talk about the apostle of our profession. Uh, in Hebrews, that's almost to the end of the Bible, Hebrews 3.1, it says this, Therefore, Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our, conf our, of our confession. Now, apostle is one who is sent. It is one who is sent from familiar surroundings to not so familiar surroundings. I think the word is missio, one who is from which we get our word missionary, one who is sent to not to familiar surroundings with a particular message for those people hoping that those people will believe. That was the character of Christ. He left what were familiar surroundings and came to a strange people and acted as they would act so that he could win them to heavenly ways. Um, and it also says that Christ is our high, the high priest of our confession. I don't have that up there. But the high priest was one who acted on behalf of the people. He would, one, he would intercede. He would go and offer the offering on behalf of the people. And I would suppose that people who knew the priests back then 
probably judged the high priest like they'd judge any other person. And they may or may not be comfortable with him being their representative. Um, when, when those of us who have a problem uh, need prayer, some of us know people we want to pray for us. And so we'll give them a call. You know, we'll say, boy, I've just got this burden. I would really feel good if you would pray for me about this. And there are a couple of prayer warriors in this church that I know, and I know if they're praying, if God's going to do anything, he's going to do it for them. He might not do it for me, but he's going to do it for them. No, they, I just feel confident with them representing me to the Lord. I know, first of all, they know me. And they will take anything I do at the best possible face value I can have. In other words, when I ask them to pray for something, they're not going to say, oh, Hunter, he's a scuzzball. Uh, he just wants this for himself, uh, so on and so forth. When I ask them to pray, they will feel so privileged to be able to pray for anybody, not just me, but I mean to pray for anybody. It is just such a, a high calling to them. Secondly, anything I pray for, they will believe that I have a good reason for needing that and believe that, that that's probably a part of God's plan. And then they'll go to the throne of grace on my behalf. And I just feel so good when those people are praying for me and so confident. What this is saying is that we have, as our prayer warrior, as our intercessor, Jesus Christ himself. And he interprets us to the best that we can be interpreted, and he will uh, represent us to God. Okay, let's go on. The author and finisher, Hebrews 12, 2. Let's take a look at that. Hebrews 12, 2. Now, in this chapter, he is talking. We need to, we need to set this in, uh, in uh, context. In this chapter, he's talking about a long, long journey. He says, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance. Now, this is a person who is struggling ahead and he's dragging a whole bunch of stuff with him. And he's saying, let's lay aside every encumbrance, every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us. You get the picture of a guy going down the road, he's struggling toward a goal, and, he's, and there's some temptation. It's just kind of calling him off to the side. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of the faith. In this, in this uh, translation, um, in other translations, it's the author and finisher of the faith who for the joy set uh, joy before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I want you to get the correct picture of what an author and finisher is here. Most of us would read that at first in a literary sense, that this is Jesus who has written out for us a script, and that he knows how we're going to act, and he is the one who has planned everything out for us, Part of that may be true, but what he's talking about here uh, has more to do with a spirit of a pioneer. The Greek words here talk about a person who is blazing a trail for us, a, a person who is the first one who, who kind of creates the path that we should go. And when it talks about the finisher, it's somebody who has, who has crossed the finish line. When Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross that it mentions here, 
What did he say? He said, it is finished. What did he mean? Did he mean that he was finally defeated? Did he mean that, that uh, uh, the, the, he had come to an end? No, he hadn't come to an end. What it, what it is, it is it's, it's the breath of a marathon runner who has struggled for 26 miles, who is running on behalf of somebody else. And he crosses that finish line and he says it is finished. In other words, I have done it. You remember just a couple of days before, he was praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And he was saying, Lord, do I really need to go through this? In other words, he was struggling right there at the end. He was having, what, sin encumbrances. He was, he was almost getting entangled in sin. The Bible says, now Jesus was tempted as we are in every way, but did not sin. So Jesus was going through that temptation. And what he did was shed that encumbrance. And he finished the race. Now, that goes on to talk about, in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, how the Lord disciplines us. And if you want to read sometime about how necessary for maturity discipline is. Now, this makes some people mad. I talk to one lady all the time says, God doesn't need to be disciplined me. <laughs> she, she really gets mad at him. She says, now listen. I'll just take everybody else, everybody I know has got a lot easier than I have, and I'd rather not be mature. I'd rather just go along with the easy path. I mean, she's just right up front about it. And we, you know, we kind of banter back and forth about that. But that's how God makes us, makes us mature. And if we are ever to be marathon runners, if we are ever to go to the cross with Christ, then we have to be disciplined. And so what this author and finisher is some pioneer who is blazing a trail out in a place that, that people have never been. And he's saying, follow me. Pick up your cross and follow me. It's not going to be easy. But when you come to the finish line, you're going to be able to say with Paul, what? I have fought the good fight. It's not, it's not easy to live life. I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. However that goes, I think I'd said that out of, out of context or out of, out of line. I have kept the faith. Therefore, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. And the, and the word crown means that the, the, the award that is given a prize athlete. So it's not easy, but it has a lot to do with self-discipline and it has a lot to do with a lot of effort. Okay, let's go on. The author of eternal salvation in Hebrews 5. Let's take a look at it. Let's look at 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, that is, perfect is not, does not mean uh, the context we usually say, the perfect comes from the Greek word tilios, which means having been made into, into what he was meant to be. Um, when, when the Greek folks, when, when, when we read this in the Bible, what it means is uh, it fits into God's overall purpose. It's like, uh, this is a bad analogy, and I'll probably mess it up because I don't know anything about things mechanical, but if I needed to screw in a screw, uh, that had a, uh, a Phillips head, 
I would not have the perfect tool if my kid brought me a saw. I would not have the perfect tool if my kid brought me a hammer. Uh, I'd probably go for the hammer because it'd be shorter work, but, but I would not even have the perfect tool if my kid brought me a straight-edge screwdriver. I would not have the perfect tool, the functional tool, the tool that really works like it was supposed to work until my son brought me a Phillips head screwdriver. Well, that's what, that's what perfect means in the Bible. It means that Jesus Christ fits exactly what he was supposed to do until, it, the Bible says, being, uh, having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Now, I want you to see the... Uh, it has author here, but the source is, is in some other uh, translations. I want you to see how Christ became the author of eternal salvation. He did not do it by showing us the way. He did it by leading us through suffering. Now, this has a lot to do with the pioneer thing, only it has a lot more to do with hurting than it does with effort. Christ himself suffered. Salvation literally means healing, letting two things come together that were separate. We get the word salve from salvation. And therefore, to be healed, you have to be broken, don't you? And Christ was broken for our transgressions. The Bible says he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. So Christ has the right to offer us salvation because through no fault of his own and because not because he owed it he was bruised on our behalf Christ has suffered for us and when it says he is the author of salvation or the source of eternal salvation it means because he has suffered like we have suffered he can lead us I don't know whether any of you have specific hurts in your lives but you will know that if someone else is suffering like you are suffering, they can become a source of healing for you because they have gone through what you have gone through. I was talking to somebody the other night, uh, a lady who was going through, I can't remember what it was, but I just stood and I could not help that lady. I said, I will pray for you and I have prayed for her. But as far as advice I have never gone through what that lady's gone through. I can't even relate, you know, not even from a female standpoint can I relate to what that lady's going through. And so for me to stand there and be a source of healing for her can only come through a miracle of God. I mean, it's not a natural thing. And I'm sure that my prayers, the, 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 the uh, um, Bible says the, the prayers of a righteous man availeth much, and I hope I'm being righteous. Righteousness, by the way, is not goodness. Righteousness means he who is fulfilling the demands of a relationship. The Bible says if you are fulfilling the demands of a race relationship, you are righteous. That's what that means. We have, we have so murdered the meaning of, those, of that word by tying it up with self-righteousness and by tying it up with pompous and wrongly I almost said pietistic, but that's a perfectly good word too. Pompous and hypocritical people who are trying to act good. Righteousness means fulfilling the demands of a relationship. 
So when you are fulfilling the demands of a certain relationship, you are being righteous. Well, if I pray for a lady, you know, that's, that's what I should do on her behalf. So therefore, I'm not calling myself holier, holier than that. So I'm sure that prayer helps somewhat. But what I'm trying to say is that you can really get healing by somebody who is facing what you're facing. When I have a, a certain thing about the ministry, and Daryl and I talk, I get healed by that conversation because I know Daryl's in the same boat I am. And he can really identify with what I'm saying. And there's a special healing in that conversation that does not come in any other conversation when I'm talking about a person who is, uh, even, a, even a person who is a leader uh, in other voluntary organizations. It's just not the same. So, Christ is the author of our eternal salvation because he has gone through what we have gone through with us. He has been broken like we have been broken. And that gives him the potency for our healing. Now, let's talk about creator. Christ is the creator. Now, this is a very important one. I want to spend a little time on this. I'll spend five minutes and then rush through the rest of them. <laughs> John, in John... Um, the first chapter of John. You guys are finding these faster than I am, I'm sure. First chapter of John, the first five verses, some of the most important verses in the Bible. In the beginning was the Word. Now, the Word in Greek is logos, and I'll, I will explain that to you in a minute. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And he was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that came into being, that has come into being. In him was life, and the life was the light of men, and the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. I want you to understand, don't ever forget this, that Christ was the creator of the universe. In Greek, the, the word logos, it means, um, it's, it's kind of hard to translate, but it means the reason, the eternal reason, the order of all things that has creative power. And the logos is what created everything. Now the reason I want you to remember that Christ was the creator of the universe and you cannot divide him from God is because this is where practically every cult and every sect we have begins. People separate the being of Christ from the being of God. Just because the Father and the Son have two different functions sometimes, and because of our Western way of thinking, it's very difficult for us to conceive of three persons in one, and that's really not the translation. It ought to be three faces Persona is the translation. Three faces of one. Now, where every heretical belief begins, or it seems to begin, from the time Arius had his first uh, uh, bout with Christ was, uh, was a created being, all the way through all of the sects that you see today, I mean, I mean the Christian sects, this is where they begin. People will come and they will try to separate the person of Jesus Christ from the person of God. And they will try to say these are two different beings. They are not, and don't believe it. 
if a Jehovah's Witness comes to your door and they sit down with you and they start reading out of the Bible to you, you go straight to John, first chapter of John, verses 1 through 5, and you just keep reading that to them. They will not grasp it. They've been to my door. I've invited it in. I've shared scripture with them. They cannot grasp this. They say, no, he's the son of God. I say, no, he is God. Listen to this. Write straight from the Bible. No, he's the son of God. It says over here. And, says, and they'll try and skip all around and try to prove that Christ, because it says he is begotten, that he was not preexistent with God and that he was not a creative force of the universe, the creative force of the universe. Don't ever let go of these verses. Because if you do, people will be able to talk you into anything. That's where it starts. Okay, enough said about that. I didn't take five minutes after all. Okay, day spring from on high, Luke 178. It says, because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high shall visit us. Now, there are two really lovely passages that I want to add to this. The first comes from Malachi 4.2. Malachi is the last uh, book in the Old Testament. It says, let me read you 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day is coming... And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. And you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. Now this is talking about the day of the Lord coming. And what is going to happen in the day of the Lord is that we're going to have a source of light that is healing. Have you ever read books like Life After Life? When somebody passes away, one of the first things that they will, will say is that I experienced this warm light that just beckoned me to come. It was gorgeous. It was just, there was so much love and understanding. What that is, is the morning star it's the day spring it is the light of god in revelation uh 21 23 i love this too i just love to read this it says in the city this is the new jerusalem the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it for the glory of god has illumined it and its lamp is the lamb Jesus is the light of the world. And when we go into that new Jerusalem, when we are there, we will not experience the need for any, ultra, for any artificial light. He is going to be our glory. So when it, when, and, the, and, the, and the Bible has a whole bunch of, of uh, terminology that differentiates the light from the darkness. And the light shone in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Someday, everything is going to be that warm, loving light. And we're just going to bask in it. It's going to be great. Okay, so he's the day spring from on high. Um, he is the deliverer. Romans 11, 26. I'm getting behind. 
Thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant with them when I will take away their sins. I want you just to note one thing about this passage. We don't have a problem anymore believing in a deliverer. What we have is a problem with spiritual maturity who believes in, that, in a deliverer that can take us out of the fire but won't put us back into the fire. Jesus Christ is just as able to deliver us to something as he is to deliver us from something. And what we have growing up these days in churches is a whole bunch of people who are coming to church wanting deliverance out of something, wanting to escape out of something. Now, Christ can do that, and he will heal, but he heals you for the purpose of putting you back in the furnace because that's how maturity comes. He delivers us to something so that we can serve his purpose. So we, deliverance is kind of a bittersweet term here. It's kind of sweet and sour. We've got to realize that the deliverer does not just let us off uh, when we get out of across the River Jordan, that he delivers us all the way to the promised land. And believe you me, folks, there's a lot to do in the promised land. I'll talk about that in just a second. Um, okay, I am the door. John 7, or 10, 7. Um, in this particular chapter, he's talking about the sheep. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. The door, a door is something that can keep a lot of folks out. But a door is also an opportunity. It's something that you can enter through. And when Jesus Christ said, I'm the door, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the light, uh, come by me and you shall be saved, I want you to know that it was not to keep people out. It was to invite people in. People get so sensed, incensed when, Jesus, when, when the Bible says that Jesus is the only way you can get to God. They are so angry about that. What Jesus was saying is, here's the sure way. You never need to doubt again. You can have all the assurance that is possible in this world that you are have an entry to God. Just come through me. Now, what's to get mad about that? There are some people just hop around, hop around. You can't say that. You can't say that. Hey, it's an invitation. It's a thing of joy. It's not a thing to keep people out. It's something to let people in. Jesus is the door. Okay, let's talk about the root and offspring of David. I don't know whether you can see down that far or not, but we're at Revelation twenty-two sixteen. It says that Jesus, let me get it here. I, Jesus, this is Jesus talking himself, have sent my angel to testify to you these things for the churches. I am the root and offspring of David the bright morning star. We see, that, we see that phrase again, don't we? When it says he is the root and the offspring of David, again, we're going back to the alpha and the omega, the author and the finisher. You see those dynamics? He's keeping it up here. 
that he is the cause of the kingship of David. But he is also a descendant of David. Now David in the, in the Old Testament meant, in the, in, the, in the New Testament, was a symbol of all of the glorious kingdom of God. It's how God finally pulled everybody together. Those poor Jews had had such a rugged time all of their lives. They had always been the underdog. They had always had trouble. They had always been afraid. They had always gone in and out. They'd, they'd find a strong leader for a while, and then they wouldn't. And they were always in tribes, and the tribes were battling. They were splitting apart, and, and uh, um, they were breaking up, and so on and so forth, until David. And David unified the entire nation, the entire nation, so that they could be at one. Now, when Jesus Christ says that he is the root and the offspring of David, what he is promising us is that someday he is going to unify the entire chosen nation, the entire uh, believer household into one. I don't know how you feel about church unity or church union, koku, the different denominations going together and so on and so forth. For me, it is not necessary. It is not necessary. Structural unity is not necessary because Jesus Christ himself is going to unify us. And we are already unified in Christ. We are already one nation. The fact that some of us have the term Baptist and some of us are Pentecostal and some of us are are uh, Presbyterian and some of us are Methodist and some of us are this and some of us are that. There are believers in every given denomination. And Christ says that someday we're all going to gather around the throne. And I am going to be the offspring of David. That is, we're going to be one unified nation again someday. I think that until that happens, it's not necessary for man to try to put churches and denominations together. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of value in having different denominations. So anyhow, that's just, that's a, that's a promise. Okay. I thought I had five minutes, but I don't know whether I do or not. So we'll just, we'll run ahead here. He said he is the true vine. That is the 15th chapter, the first verse. Oh, I know what, that, that dinner's getting out, isn't it? Okay, I, I understand though. Okay, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. And he goes on and he says... That you are the branch. I'm the vine. You are the branches. Without me, you can do nothing. Um, I'm going to be talking more about this. As a matter of fact, I'll probably save this one because this is going to be uh, the week after next week's sermon uh, about how you cannot take the form of Christianity away from the source of Christianity and have anything that lives. And that's what carnal Christians try to do. So let me just save that uh, for later on, and I'll, I'll talk about it later on. And one last thing that I want to tell you before the, before the folks come out with chocolate all over their lips. Um, we'll go right back to the beginning. He is the seed of woman. It says in the third chapter of Genesis that... This is, oh, let me read, let me read to you some so you can have a context for this. This is the uh, Garden of Eden. Uh, everyone has just been tempted and they have eaten. 
man has just gotten done saying, uh, God has said, hey, have you eaten of the tree? And, uh, and she said, he, he tries to pass it back. Well, the woman that you gave to me, I mean, yeah, but I mean, she gave it to me. And he turns to the woman, she passes the buck to the serpent, all the serpent that you put in here, and so on and so forth. And then he goes to the serpent. And boy, he just cleans his clock. Listen to this. And the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all the cattle and more than every beast of the field. And on your belly you shall go, and the dust shall you eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. Now let me just pause for a minute and, let, and, and tell you this. This serpent is a symbol for everything that will tempt us to become less than God intended us to be by offering us more than we thought we had. You understand what I'm saying? Less than what God intended us to be by offering us more than what God said we ought to get involved in. And what God is saying here is that all through history, people are going to fall in the same way. I'm going to put enmity and you're going to be at war. In other words, we're always going to be tempted to reach out beyond who we are and not depend on God. But, now listen to this, listen to this prophecy here. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. In other words, her seed, which is Christ, is going to bruise him on the head. In other words, he will have final victory. Now, he's going to bruise you on the heel. He's going to nip at you, and he's going to get a part of you that, that uh, uh, will make you limp and will make you need recovery and so on and so forth. But what this is, has, has time-honored interpretation has interpreted this as saying is that the final victory belongs to Christ. And this says that Christ is the seed of the woman. And that in, in the last days, in Revelation it tells us very plainly that he is going to bind up Satan for a thousand years. And then Satan is going to be let loose again for a little while, but he will come and bind him up again permanently and cast him into the lake of fire. And that will be the result of those battles that have been going on for eons and eons because Christ is the seed of the woman and because at the very beginning the Lord told him what was going to happen. Okay, I got through it. <laughs> I've got one minute to spare, uh, to spare, to spare, which we will, which we will spend in prayer. That's what I was going to try and say. Father, we thank you for your word. More than anything, we thank you for a solid picture of who Jesus Christ was, so that we can invite all of those different aspects into our lives. And we can follow him more accurately. There is nothing so valuable as the revelation you have given, uh, given to us in the Bible. And I ask you tonight to take this message and to mold it into the needs of these people. So that they might become stronger individual Christians. And you might deliver them from ignorance and deliver me from ignorance. And deliver us all from the burdens we have, the entanglements, that we might run a race and we might not become involved in sin. 
but that we might finish it so that you can deliver us to the struggles in becoming examples for other people. That is, that you can use us as your Christian people to be a blessing to other people. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. We thank you. We love you. And we ask you to go with us from here. In Jesus' name, amen.